Hello, and welcome to this episode of the BDNG podcast. My name is Julia Wheeler, and I'm the Educational Development Nurse for the BDNG. We hope you enjoy listening to this series and find them beneficial to your practice. This first series of podcasts is sponsored by Almoral. Almoral has no influence over the content of these podcasts. Happy listening. Hello and welcome to the official BDNG podcast. We are your hosts, Ashlyn Cleary and Emmanuel Tony, and we are both clinical nurse specialists in dermatology. Today, we are talking to Dr. Emma LaRue and Dr. Julia Schofield about the National Outpatient Transformation Programme. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. So let's kick off the podcast by telling us a little bit about yourselves. So if you could mention who you both are and how you became involved in this project. Okay, well, I'll start. I'm Emma LaRue. I'm a GP in Gloucestershire, and I also work as a specialty doctor in the local uh, dermatology department at Gloucester Royal Hospital. I, my background is that I worked in Australia for uh, quite a few years and developed a keen interest in dermatology, uh, mainly because over there there's lots of um, skin cancer, it's rural community and, and very few dermatologists. When I returned to the UK, I undertook specialist training in dermatology and spent several years also working within dermatology primary care research, focusing on self-management for patients with long-term skin conditions. I've uh, led on the Royal College of General Practitioners Spotlight Project for Dermatology a couple of years ago, which aimed to try and increase and support primary healthcare professionals with learning and confidence in caring for patients with skin problems. And the reason I wanted to become involved in this project was that I was aware of the considerable waiting times that patients with long-term inflammatory conditions have been experiencing. And they get there is inequity in their access compared to patients with suspected skin cancer who are prioritised on the two-week wait pathway. I also have a lot of experience as a clinician in the opportunity and challenges associated with using teledermatology. Fantastic, lovely, thank you. And uh, what about yourself, Julia? Would you like to introduce yourself, please? So um, thank you very much. I'm uh, Julia Schofield and I'm currently a consultant dermatologist in Lincolnshire. I started out actually in primary care as a general practitioner and went into dermatology because I didn't know enough dermatology when I was doing my surgeries, um, my GP surgeries. And I chose to spend some time doing dermatology clinics and became absolutely hooked on the specialty. I worked through um, training, which was in uh, West Hertfordshire and then at the Royal London Hospital, and I became a consultant in Hertfordshire in 1995. I've um, always been interested in different ways of delivering care, particularly since I did some work for the Action on Dermatology programme in the early 2000s. I've also been particularly keen to develop and support what we call extended role practitioners such as specialist nurses and GPs with an extended role. And as part of this, I'm the clinical lead for the um, very successful University of Hertfordshire Dermatology Master's Programme, where we have lots of excellent dermatology nurses on our uh, multi-professional modules who are studying our master's programme. So why did I get involved? Well, very much like Emma, really. I wanted to make a difference for patients, particularly those with long-term skin conditions. I've been a trustee of the Psoriasis Association for 12 years, and I'm acutely aware of the difficulties that people with psoriasis have in accessing care because of the emphasis on the two-week weight skin cancer pathway 
and the impact that this has on people with inflammatory skin disease. And I'm hoping that this work that we're doing will change things and make access much better for this group of patients. Thank you for another lovely introduction. I couldn't think of two better people to uh, to help lead on the National Outpatient Transformational Programme. But uh, just a question to Julia. Could you please provide context this episode by, uh, can you please share a general overview of the NHS long-term plan uh, slash National Outpatient Transformational Programme and how this relates to dermatology as a speciality, please? So the NHS long-term plan, and we've had quite a lot of NHS plans in the time that that I've been working in the NHS, so this was just another new long-term plan. It was published in January 2019, but it is a bit different, I think, this one. Um, It sets out a 10-year programme of improvements to NHS services and outcomes, and there are some very specific commitments sitting in there that are supposed to be achieved by 2023-24. And these relate to changing the number of people who come to specialist appointments at hospitals. There are such a lot of dermatology outpatient appointments. There were about 3 million in 2019-2020. And this means that dermatology is a very high volume specialty. Demand is rising all the time. And dermatology departments are really struggling to meet the growing demand because of limited specialist workforces. We've already spoken briefly about the demands of diagnosing and managing suspected skin cancers on the two-week wait and the impact that this has on people with inflammatory skin conditions. Their appointments are often cancelled or delayed as a result or they have to be overbooked onto clinics. So the NHS long-term plan was very much about trying to make things better and looking at different ways of doing things. And as part of the NHS long-term plan, the National Outpatient Transformation Programme was established. It's a part of the Improvement Directorate at NHS England and Improvement. And basically, the vision of the NOTP and what we're trying to do within the NOTP, the Outpatient Transformation Programme, is to meet the the NHS long-term plan commitments by reducing the number of unnecessary visits to hospitals. Essentially, the idea is that we will do this safely, and I think that's one of the real challenges for us, by redesigning services using new technologies, empowering patients more, and still trying to improve patient experience and outcomes, but at all times trying to reduce the number of unnecessary outpatient appointments. There are some really challenging targets within the NHS plan, which Emma and I have found very difficult to deal with in terms of dermatology. There are clear statements that up to a third of face-to-face appointments delivered in outpatients should, for example, be avoided by using new technologies, for example, such as remote consultations. Now, whereas in some specialties this may work well, we're not quite sure that there is such a lot of opportunity within dermatology to do this, and we'll come back to this later on. But there are new ways of working. There are ways that we could, for example, improve uh, follow-up care, enabling patients to reaccess services in a timely fashion, and working more closely with GPs to access earlier expert advice. 
So we do think um, that there are changes that we can make, and we think nurses will be firmly at the heart of these changes, which is why it's really exciting to be speaking on this podcast to your audience and to other people as well. And the work will support redesign of uh, high-volume specialties such as dermatology, optimising referrals, modernising care delivery, and wherever possible, personalising ongoing care. But the mission statement has to be at all times that people are seen by the right person in the right place at the right time. And hopefully this will reduce waiting times and the pressure on busy hospital sites, particularly where parking and facilities are are limited. Thank you, Julia, for providing context to the episode. Now, leading on to the NOTP Dermatology Workstream, when did this programme start? And I may give this question to you, actually, Emma. Can you provide us with an overall insight on the programme? Yes, certainly. So Julia and I were appointed as joint clinical leads back in about about a year ago, September, October time, 2020. And it was felt very important that there was representation from both primary care and secondary care within this programme of work. And we've worked very closely with a very strong advisory group, which has included uh, representation from patient organisations, the British Association of Dermatologists, the British Dermatological Nursing Group, which this podcast is for, the Primary Care Dermatology Society, and obviously wider representation from NHS England and Improvement. And the outputs have really been informed by the findings of the Getting It Right First Time review, which you may be aware of, which found there was a, a wide unwarranted variation in the provision of dermatology services in the UK, and that the experience of people with skin, skin disease varies greatly as a consequence. And so we've been very mindful of this in, in developing the guidance that has been produced, and obviously work very closely with the advisory group to develop that, all the, all the guidance documents. And the process that we've gone through is that we have there is, within the National Outpatient Transformation Programme, there are generic guidance pieces of work and teams. And what we did was we've engaged with them very strongly, the generic teams. And then we've involved the dermatology stakeholders in developing first drafts of the guidance that we produced. That's all been strongly reviewed again and modified when it was put out to the, the advisory group. And the final documents and guidance has all been published on the NHS Future site, which I'm not sure if you may be aware of that, but we can certainly provide details probably at the end of the podcast. And in due course, we hope that this will be published. There is a long process to get these documents published through the gateway process, and there's been a big delay due to COVID. But in due course, we do hope that these will be published on the NHS ENI website. And the main outputs, just so you're aware, is that the, the first one is the teledermatology roadmap, which is around the use of di- digital images with referrals. The second output is about remote consultations in dermatology, which encompasses telephone and video consultations. Referral optimization, which we'll talk about, which includes optimizing the two-week weight skin cancer referral pathway. Then there's the final piece is patient-initiated follow-up, also known as PIFU. And then we are also working on a dermatology pathway redesign considerations document, which is around reviewing the specific issues where health equalities are likely to be impacted by these dermatology redesign processes, people with skin problems specifically. So for example, digital exclusion, 
or um, inequity of access to psychological support and that kind of thing. If I can just uh, pick up on one of the things you mentioned there, because I heard the word uh, teledermatology, which obviously has been quite a uh, trigger word here in dermatology for the past year or so in the UK. Uh, If I can ask you, what does the definition of dermatology, teledermatology, sorry, refer to and why is this needed? Okay, so teledermatology, the definition is that it's the use of digital images together with relevant history to triage, diagnose, monitor or assess skin conditions without the patient physically being present. Now, dermatology being a very visual specialty is actually quite well suited to using teledermatology and digital imaging, particularly um, it's about to have created opportunities for us to think about new ways of working and to manage the demand for dermatology diagnosis and being able to embrace that technology, uh, we hope we'll be able to release capacity for better quality and more timely treatment for those who need it. Perfect. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. So with um, teledermatology, then I can see that you have five specific steps um, which aims to deliver tel- teledermatology triage. Would you be able to inform us of those five steps? So step one is that we need to include images with all, uh, where preferable, where possible with all dermatology referrals and with advice and guidance requests. Now, for those who don't know what an advice and guidance request is, uh, it is around a, a digital dialogue between the primary care referrer and the community or, or hospital-based specialist to try and obtain expert rapid advice about either diagnosis or management. But the process of including images with, with referrals or advice and guidance requests is, a, is to enable the consultants or the specialist services to triage referrals, ensuring that face-to-face attendances are only happening when, ne- when necessary. The second step is that we need to think about being able to triage both suspected cancer and routine referrals using teledermatology. Third step is that we must include the uh, job planning as part of a specialist or consultant-led community provider's job plan because that enables us to plan the clinics and enable the activity to be properly recorded so that people are actually given the time to do that, time and space to do that work. And then the fourth point about the five steps is that we need to monitor and record this teledermatology activity and the cost so that we can develop sustainable funding models for the future. And the fifth step is really around training and making sure there's continuous training across all professional groups and care settings in the process of using teledermatology. Thank you. And I've just got another uh, follow-up question still on the topic of teledermatology. And that is, what are some of the benefits versus risks? Okay, so in terms of benefits, we've mentioned some already, but it can enable much timelier triage by the specialists of referrals. Also, diagnosis, as I've mentioned, particularly using the advice and guidance pathway and initiation of care and treatment plans in a much faster way. We want what we're aiming for is that referrals are dealt with in an efficient, effective way where patients are then seen by the right specialist at the right time. Another benefit is that patients can be managed much more in primary care 
through the advice and guidance process, which can avoid unnecessary specialist appointments at, in the hospital, which is one of our key aims. If patients are triaged, which we hope they will be, they can sometimes be booked straight for diagnostics or surgery through the specialist triage process. We aim to have better use of time and resources. It's can hopefully reduce waiting times due to increased capacity created by that reduction in face-to-face appointments. And obviously, in terms of there are many environmental benefits because of reduced carbon footprint from patients having to drive up for their outpatient appointments and, and using transports. In terms of the risks, there are a number of risks associated with teledermatology, which are really clearly laid out um, within our guidance. Obviously, if the images that are being sent up are of poor quality, there is a big risk of misdiagnosis. It's really important when we're using skin, looking at skin lesions, that dermoscopic images are included as well as macroscopic images. There's risks relating to privacy, breach of confidentiality, particularly around having to obtain these images. We need confidential and secure mechanisms to be able to safely capture images and store and transmit them to the specialist services. Now, we all know that there is significant evidence that skin cancers other than the index lesion can be picked up through full skin examination, that patients might not notice, they might have a lesion on their back or an area that's hard to see sight. And that is a risk that we are missing some of those skin cancers. But we think that it's important that we stratify patients, you know, if they are known to have had a previous skin cancer, or they have multiple moles. These are not patients that are suitable for teledermatology alone. They need to be triaged into a face-to-face appointment. We can underestimate the severity of a skin condition when we're using teledermatology because obviously we're not able to examine the whole of the skin. And it can definitely be more difficult to assess the psychosocial burden of living with a long-term skin condition when using teledermatology. Now, when patients, we often need to get, deliver sort of hands-on education and information for self-care of uh, skin conditions. And that obviously is, can be, is a limited option. It's not really available through teledermatology. So that, that is one of the risks. And we just need to be mindful that if patients don't feel their condition is being adequately assessed, they can sometimes lose our confidence and then they may not seek our support in future. And that can obviously lead to worse clinical outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's an extremely valid point there. There's a lot of benefits and risks clearly come with teledermatology. But within this piece of work, I believe you've produced three videos to support primary care with implementation. Um, Would you be able to share where these can be accessed? Uh, Yes, so we've had three videos. One is specifically designed for the first one is for patients to optimise them being able to take the best quality photos that they can. We're, We're seeing, and certainly in primary care since covid uh, 19 pandemic that there are a lot of um, the need for a lot of patient taken images and so we've produced a video for them and that that video all of the videos are available on the NHS ENI YouTube account but the patient video is also available on the National Health and Care Library again I'm sure we can provide links for that so yeah we the second video is for clinicians in primary care to optimize their ab- ability to take photos through a confidential, secure smartphone app, and then how to upload the images into clinical systems in primary care and to be able to use those images with advice and guidance requests or referrals. And the third video is really an administration-facing video, which is to get the primary care admin teams to support you with being able to 
you know, use advice and guidance services. Thank you. And uh, how do you, sorry, how can this be utilised? How can teledermatology be utilised, for example, medical dermatology versus, say, skin cancer? Well, the answer is it can be used for both. Uh, Obviously, when there is clinical uncertainty about either inflammatory conditions or if there's skin lesions that you're not sure about, you're thinking you're just a bit uncertain, you think, I think it's okay, but I'm not sure. And then that's the time to use the advice and guidance uh, request pathway in primary care to support with rapid assistance. So to obtain rapid assistance with either the diagnosis or a management plan. And then we do also have within our guidance, new pathway for two-week weight referrals, which includes the option of uh, using teledermatology to accompany a two-week weight dermatology referral. But Julia will talk about that in a, in a little while. And like I said, you can use it for both medical inflammatory conditions as well as suspicious lesions. But the advice and guidance pathway is really for the uncertain suspicious lesions, not uh, the things that you think are fairly obviously likely to be a skin cancer. Yeah, no, um, very clearly explained there. In what capacity will dermatology nurses be involved in this then? I think there's definitely a role. I think we are part of uh, the work we produce is around remote consultations for dermatology, for patients potentially being monitored by dermatology nurses with long-term inflammatory skin conditions and they may have for example a flare-up of their skin condition and need to send in a photo to the dermatology department which could then be looked at by the nurses to see um, to to, again to help them establish the severity of that flare-up at that time. Also for patients who are on these patient-initiated follow-up pathways uh, again it's quite likely that you'll either be involved in doing it potentially a remote consultation through a video or getting patients to send up images to so that again you can see and, and triage them effectively into the appropriate uh, clinic or follow up as required or give them the correct advice at that time. Lovely thank you and uh, we've talked a little bit as well about referral optimization so if we can just this is for Julie if you could please say what does referral optimization mean and what does it involve? So the idea of referral optimization, which is a bit of a long-winded term, is that we improve the whole patient pathway. So historically, what happened was you went to your GP, you had a bit of a problem, a bit of acne, for example. The GP tried one or two things and you didn't get better. So you got referred on a routine pathway. You waited many months and it was all a bit frustrating. And by the time you got to see somebody, Um, actually you might even be quite a bit worse because you'd had a delay and if you've got really bad acne for example you might get there and you'd already got quite a lot of scarring contrasted with the fact that there might be some people that are seen at the same time whose condition was relatively mild so the old-fashioned referral process didn't really sort out the need of patients being seen at the right time in terms of the severity of their condition So the idea of the referral optimization process is is that we improve the whole patient pathway. So what we've done in our guidance is we've tried to address the issue um, with the support of our patient organizations on the advisory group of ways in which we can optimize self-care and encourage patients to develop the knowledge and skills and confidence to live with their skin condition more independently and self-manage. 
We also want to strengthen primary care. And this is a real challenge in the post-COVID world because GPs are very stretched. They were having a, a wave, a huge wave of patients that are now coming forward uh, who did not attend during the pandemic. So this is really difficult, but we want to find ways to strengthen primary care so that patients can get that best possible care prior to their referral. In other words, their referral, once it happens, is what we call oven ready. So everything that's been done in primary care has been done and everything's been tried. There's nothing worse as a specialist than seeing a patient who's waited ages for an appointment and just giving some very simple advice that could have been given in primary care. So it's optimizing that primary care experience. And then the next step is a fundamental redesign of how patients access our services, our specialist services or our intermediate dermatology services, which is, as Emma's already spoken about, advice and guidance, which is this interaction between the primary care clinician and the intermediate care or specialist clinician. And basically, this will become the front door to our service. So instead of you going to the GP and then writing a letter and you getting an appointment, the all of the access to the service will be through advice and guidance. So specialist teams will change their workload and they'll have a hot week. And during the hot week, they will review all of the advice and guidance requests that come in from primary care healthcare professionals. And they will either just give the GP some advice and suggest some treatment or support a diagnosis or a pathway, or alternatively, they will triage the patient to an appropriate service. And that triage will be really, really important because this is where people with for example, severe acne will be able to be seen more promptly than those with milder acne because they'll be triaged more appropriately to the right service. So, for example, patients might be um, triaged to urgent or routine review. And the plan that we're just setting this up in Lincolnshire, we're about to start it in August, and we're setting up some extra urgent slots every week so that if uh, we get an AMG request from a GP with someone with a terrible rash, they can be booked directly onto an urgent slot. We might book them directly onto a surgical list, which is hugely helpful for our patients in Lincolnshire who have a long way to travel. And if they've got a BCC, we could have a nurse call them, do a preoperative consultation, explain to them what's involved and book them directly for um, their surgery. We might arrange an appointment in a community dermatology service, or if we're anxious, uh, we might upgrade uh, to a two-week wait referral. So those are just some examples of how one will have advice and guidance as the front door to enable that the right the patients are seen uh, by the right person at an appropriate time and in an appropriate place. And we think this will make a huge difference potentially. Did you say often ready? Was that the correct phrase I heard? Oven ready, O-V-E-N, <laughs> oven ready. This was a term that, that was used at one of our advisory group meetings. And I actually thought it was quite good. It you is. know how you get your chicken oven ready and you put it in the oven when you've got the stuffing and everything in. Well, and basically what he was trying to get across to us, this was a member of the uh, outpatient transformation team. What he was trying to get across to us is that there's an awful lot that can be done. 
I mean, I cannot tell you how frustrated I am when I see a patient with an irritant eczema who's not even been told to stop using their shower gels and to use a bit of an emollient and a bit of topical steroid. Very basic, simple information that could have prevented them from having uh, a horrible time and a miserable skin condition for many months prior to referral. And I'm sure Emma can relate to that. Uh, as well because she works across the primary secondary care interface yeah no definitely very well said there I I, I laughed when you said take the chicken out yeah. if, if you know how to cook <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh with this pathway supporting general um practice nurses is that something that um you know you've thought about to encourage you know referral optimization that they're upskilled enough um as well in this in this pathway I think there's tremendous opportunities for um, a range of different um, dermatology nurses to be involved. So I think that we've got some fantastic community dermatology models around the country. I can think just off the top of my head of models in Bristol, uh, in Norfolk and in Cambridgeshire. These are great models of specialist community dermatology services. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to develop and expand those so that, for example, people with acne, eczema, psoriasis, long-term skin conditions could actually access community specialist dermatology services. I think that would be a tremendous opportunity. I think the other role for community specialist dermatology nurses is in providing teaching and support for primary care colleagues so that they get more confidence in managing people with straightforward skin conditions. And so that it's what's really important is patients get consistent and reliable advice, particularly, for example, around the use of topical treatments, application of how how to use topical treatments, what the quantities are. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity with the development of new models of care to embrace the role of community specialist dermatology nurses supporting primary care healthcare professionals to improve the out-of-hospital community experience that patients have. I think the other thing that nurses in general practice can do, separate probably from specialist dermatology nurses, is that they can get involved in clinical reviews of people, for example, those with psoriasis, Um, They can help with lifestyle counselling. There's a lot of uh, evidence and support now and models being developed for lifestyle counselling, particularly for people with psoriasis, where we know that there is a link between the metabolic syndrome, hypertension, etc., comorbidities and psoriasis. They could support with the development of written action plans, which have been shown to be very helpful for patients and supporting, as I've said, the use of topical treatments. And I think signposting patients to resources to support self-management is really important. I think some nurses will inevitably develop a role uh, in terms of taking images. And Emma, you asked Emma about the role of nurses in teledermatology, and she spoke about actually nurses looking at those images and acting on on the image in terms of maybe patient-initiated follow-ups. But I do know that there are quite a lot of models already where there are nurses taking images, filling in the pro forma about skin lesions and involved in sending those images in, working alongside or working alongside specialist teams. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for nurses within referral optimization. Thank you. Yeah, it really is quite an exciting time, I think, for uh, dermatology nurses because there is so much 
potential expansion over the next few years and our role really is going to be key and front and centre. But if I could just ask a question about a remote consultation. Uh, so this question is for Emma and it is, what is meant by remote consultation and how can these be delivered? Yes, so a remote consultation is an appointment that takes place between a patient and a clinician, either over the telephone or using video, as opposed to being face-to-face. So it's, you're not face-to-face, you are remote, as, as the title says. Now, in terms of what type of remote consultation will be uh, appropriate, will very much depend on the type of skin condition and symptom control. And there's always got to be flexibility to convert back to a face-to-face consultation. And what, for example, if you're just thinking about patients with a lot of stable, long-term inflammatory skin conditions, they may be quite happy if everything's going well, that they just, they just get a telephone call scheduled in to review their bloods and their symptoms and side effects from medication. But if a patient, for example, is having a flare-up of their problem, they may be better suited to a video consultation rather than a telephone consultation so that the skin can be visualised. We do know, however, uh, that it's important to provide safety netting and escalation plans for patients who are undergoing remote consultations. And, um, And what resources are available then to assist staff? Well, before we come to resources, I think it's just important to outline that um, in terms of the who is just running back to who might be suitable to undergo a remote consultation, we just need to be mindful that there's a lot of skin cancer activity in dermatology. And really, these patients are not suitable generally for remote consultations because they need full often need a full skin examination, lymph node examination, particularly for follow-ups and that sort of thing. So just bearing that in mind. But it's felt that, and we put all this within our guidance, that potential suitable groups, as I mentioned, includes the patients with long-term, well-controlled inflammatory skin conditions, patients who are having an acute flare-up where an urgent face-to-face appointment is not possible, then you could undertake that uh, remote consultation as a stopgap while you're working out where you can see them or or give them some short-term management advice before they're seen face-to-face. It could also be used for follow-up for results or discharging patients after they've had histology results. So giving them the histology histology results for non-cancerous, benign, or uncomplicated non-melanoma skin cancers, for example, basal cell cancers or low risk squamous cell cancers when the patient is going to be discharged from dermatology specialist follow-up. And there may be a role also for remote consultations. We know that during the pandemic, there has been uh, several models of remote consultations for patients undergoing uh, isotretinoin treatment for acne, but obviously it's only suitable for uh, male patients because the uh, female patients And the current requirements are that they do need to be part of the pregnancy prevention plan. Female patients of childbearing age, certainly we would not recommend remote consultations for. And also just to mention that it's felt that really new patients who are being referred seen should not be seen first in their first consultation through a remote consultation. It's really important that we 
are able to establish not only a diagnosis, but to build any ongoing relationships with the patients. And it's not as easy to do that at the first time when you meet someone through a remote consultation. And like I say, for skin cancer patients, particularly with a full body examination or any other condition where you feel a full body skin examination is needed, then a remote consultation is not, it's not, it's not really suitable. And also if the patients, as Julia's mentioned, there's a lot of hands-on education um, that is required for certain skin conditions and where that hands-on advice and education is needed, a remote consultation may not be the best um, medium to, to see that patient at that time. So it's just about identifying and really thinking about who is suitable and who is not suitable. In terms of resources, which you mentioned, that we've asked about, any clinician who is trained in a face-to-face consultations can undertake a remote consultation. So dermatology nurses alongside um, doctors obviously can do this, but everybody really needs specific training in in remote consultations to optimise the outcomes. They're going to need to have confidence with using technology, for example, the video consultation platforms. They need to have really probably training in how to build a rapport and establish trust through a remote consultation, rather, which is different to, to when you see someone face to face and to manage the and address the inevitable reduced visual and nonverbal cues that happen with remote consultations and um, some training also around uh, patient consent, confidentiality, potential safeguarding and that sort of those kinds of issues. It's really important that that healthcare professionals are given adequate time for these consultations because they don't take less time than a face-to-face consultation. Sometimes they can actually take longer, and those time we need to make sure that time is given, and that also it's these remote consultations are in an appropriate environment, and you also need access to all the relevant patient records and supporting documentation, just as you would need in a face-to-face consultation. There's lots of guidance and training documents which are available, um, all listed within our resources in the guidance documents, but they're available through organisations including the GMC, NHS England, British Association of Dermatologists to support um, guidance and training for remote consultations. But in terms of video consultation software, I think local organisations would need to provide specific training in their uh, platform that they're using. Lovely. Thank you. And you you picked up on a lot of points there. And I think I certainly resonated with the time one. There's certainly an assumption that these teledermatology appointments are going to be quicker, but they they really aren't. I kind of noticed that almost it leads to a doubling in workload with some of my uh, patients then requiring face faces, then not necessarily coming in and having their monitoring bloods. Whereas if they were just there in person, you know, we'd send them down to the phlebotomy rooms and the bloods would be done straight away. So it definitely has a added to the workload. But can I just ask a question about how uh, identifying and managing the risks associated with the remote consultations? So I think in terms of uh, the risks, they are really similar to those of teledermatology that I talked about earlier. And as you've correctly identified, sometimes these appointments, they take longer. It's really important that these the risks around remote consultations and also just avoiding double activity, as you've stated, are mitigated and the most important way we can do that is by carefully selecting the patients through specialist-led triage 
There's a lot of other things that we do need to consider. I've mentioned a few, so that, but just to reiterate, there needs to be privacy, appropriate privacy for clinician and patient. Obviously, there needs to be reliable access and confidence with using any technology for both the patient and the clinician. And the patient needs to be able to accurately describe their symptoms and be able to follow instructions if they're we're using a remote consultation means of uh, talking about their problems and trying to establish what's going on. To a certain extent, the pa- definitely the patient's preference is, is needs to be considered, but we also need to consider their suitability, which is down to specialist-led triage. We need to have suitably trained healthcare professionals to, to undertake and who are working in the suitable environment to, to be able to do this work. We need to give patients contact information uh, which is very, very important. It's always important to give patients contact information, but with a remote consultation, it really does need to be reiterated about what they have, they should do. If their symptoms change, they need an escalation plan. Who, who can they contact and, and what should they do in that situation that they're experiencing potentially more urgent symptoms? I think in terms of doing remote consultations in uh, children or in adults who lack capacity, we really need to think carefully whether that is the appropriate way to see those patients. That needs to be very much uh, considered very, very carefully before remote consultation is set up for that group. As you've mentioned, we need to make sure we've got proper pathways for when there's blood tests or imaging required so that there's not this toing and froing. We need to have a proper pathway set up. I've mentioned all the issues around safety of making sure we're capturing any images that are sent in to support clinical uh, decision-making. That really needs to be very carefully considered and set up in your local department. In terms of optimising remote consultations, I think they can definitely be enhanced by potentially patients sending in images through a secure platform. You can also, we're all aware of the... um, quality of life, dermatology, quality of life, severity, disease severity assessments. So sending out those kind of questionnaires for patients to fill in and send back, perhaps prior to the consultation, can really enhance that consultation to look at the impact that the skin condition is having on them. And we just need to be also making sure, because we're not with the patient, we need to have robust arrangements so that they got they can be provided with any supporting resources that they need after the consultation has taken place yeah no thank you for that julia we actually do use the pre-assessment questionnaires already which we actually find very useful so um i totally agree with a lot of the points you've made there um but can sorry emma um can i move on to julia now and and ask you about our patient initiated follow-ups or pifu can you give us a bit of an overview of this and why why is the need for formalizing this concept well, I think this, this issue will be very familiar to many dermatology specialist nurses working in secondary care departments in particular. The idea of patient-initiated follow-up, the term is used to describe when a patient or their carer can initiate their follow-up appointments as and when required, for example, when their symptoms or circumstances change. And the idea is it will help patients to access support when they need it, and hopefully reduce the need for routine review appointments. Now, when I first heard of this term, I was a bit dismissive of it. I thought, well, this is ridiculous. We do this in our clinics already. We don't need any new name, and this PIFU is a silly name. Uh, We've got a a nurse-led helpline, and people ring in, and they get seen. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work for patients, and it certainly doesn't work for our nurses, and it doesn't provide equity of access to reaccess care in a timely fashion for everybody. 
So having reflected on it quite a bit and also spoken with our nurses who say that some weeks, some days they'll have 23 calls on the helpline and they have no idea where to arrange to see these patients. And many of them have actually just run out of their creams and ointments and actually could go to the GP. So many of them don't need to call. I reflected on it. And as part of this national agenda, I think it is a good idea because I think what it does is it formalises that whole open access follow-up that we have in our departments. We've got a lot of informal PIFU services as open access appointments and nurse-led helplines. But the other problem which many of you nurses will have encountered is that if the patient hasn't been seen for six or nine months, they often have been discharged from the service and they have to be re-referred. And this is unacceptable for people with long-term conditions such as psoriasis. We do need to make it a better and a more reliable reaccess service for patients so that they can come when it's needed. And I think it will also help us to manage our demand a bit better. These patients who ring in, it's often the one who shouts loudest, who gets overbooked onto the clinic. And the person who isn't is a bit timid who sits at home and you see them for their usual follow-up appointment and their skin is dreadful and they've been off work for three months. So it sorts out and balances that mismatch um, and tries to make sure that the the idea is it will try to make sure that people reaccess care when they need it. It should, and I think if we can reduce some of the follow-up activity, it will avoid unnecessary trips to hospital. hospital. And for a lot of patients, um, they want to take control of their own health care. They don't want to come every three months when they're fine. They want to come when their skin has flared. So the idea is that it will give people an option to have their appointments when they need them when their skin flares. That's the principle, and it's formalising what many of us are already doing with our nurse-led helplines and open access follow-up. Lovely. Thank you for summarising that. Uh, just a follow-up question. In which settings slash for which patients is this appropriate? Is PIFRU appropriate? And just to go back to the whole uh, medical dermatology versus skin cancer again as well. Well, I think this is a really important point. And when we discussed this PIFRU process with our advisory group and our patient organisations, they very much want uh, PIFRU to be implemented to redress the balance between people with inflammatory skin conditions and those with skin cancer. The um, NICE guidelines around the management of people with skin cancer and the quality standards have ensured pretty robust services for people with skin cancer. They're able to reaccess through their key workers. And for many patients, the skin cancer services and the sort of patient-initiated follow-up for skin cancer is well-established. So the idea is that this will be predominantly directed at people with inflammatory skin conditions. And there are just a few examples when it might be used. For example, if you see a new patient with a moderate skin condition, you've made a diagnosis and you're pretty confident about response to treatment, and you think they probably only need one appointment and they should get better, then those are ideally suited to PIFU. So what you do is you give them uh, information about how to reaccess the service if the treatment doesn't work. So that's one group of patients. I think it's really well suited, and the advisory group felt this and the patient organisations, it's particularly well suited to people with long-term conditions such as psoriasis and eczema who can self-manage and look after their skin themselves who are well knowledgeable about and confident about acting on changes in their symptoms uh, and when they get a flare 
being able to call and reaccess services if they can't get things sorted out in primary care. I think another group is those patients, and I'm sure many of the nurses uh, can relate to this, is patients who've completed phototherapy, particularly those with psoriasis. It's so frustrating. They have a course of phototherapy, they're discharged, and maybe 18 months later or a couple of years later, they have a bereavement or they move house and they get an acute flare, and they know perfectly well that just a short course of TLO1 would sort it out. And instead of being able to reaccess care, they have to have a referral, they have to wait ages, and they have all the uh, unhappiness whilst they're waiting. So PIFU, advice and guidance, these sorts of pathways should enable those people to reaccess care appropriately. There's, there was debate about whether or not people that are on long-term medication should also have PIFU. And I think there's a I think you can decide uh, within your own organization. Some people would quite like to give people appointments, say nine or twelve months apart, and a PIFU in between, and they can look at the blood tests if they're on long-term medication in between. Others felt that was a little bit uncertain and people might slip through the net and they didn't want to use it for that. I think just going back to the skin cancer, there is a little bit of debate. We're probably going to get some sort of stratified follow-up arrangements for skin cancer in due course. I personally think that we should be using this to improve outcomes for people with inflammatory skin conditions, but I do know that some departments are going to use it for skin cancer patients as well. But I think that that's, that should be secondary to improving the service that our people with inflammatory skin conditions get. I mean, there are risks, inevitably, and some people will use it all the time, and that's a problem. You'll still have people who are quite noisy and ring up every five minutes and want to be seen. So there will still be that problem, and that will, can potentially increase um, the workload. Our patients' organisations were concerned that it does require people to be proactive and we know that some people with long-term skin conditions are reluctant to seek help and advice. They don't want to trouble us. So I think that is another risk. I think if you're, uh, you may have problems with continuity of care, it might be quite difficult for you to ensure that the patient, when they ring on their POFU, is seen by the clinician that knows them, and you just need to think about that. Sometimes patients can't quite work out whether they need to see their specialist or whether they could be managed in primary care. But I think you can get around that. If you have a decent enough service, you can try and understand what the problem is and signpost the patient appropriately. But setting this up is going to require some support. And so you do need to have administrative and uh, clerical support to ensure that you can deliver this. So there's a risk that if you set it up without the right systems in place, then everybody will be overburdened and it won't work very well. But much like all of the initiatives that we're talking about, the risks of PIFU can be mitigated by careful selection of patients. So there is a big message that's coming through here. Teledermatology, remote consultations, PIFU. You need to select your patients very carefully for these initiatives. And provided you do that, then it can work well. But it's not a one-size-fits-all at all. Yeah, no, definitely. And I suppose it seems very familiar with our nurse-led helplines that we have established already. Um, so from that perspective, how, how can nurses help with this? Well, I think actually that uh, the dermatology nursing team are pivotal in the development and implementation of the uh, PIFU service. 
We wrote um, a little bit more about this in our in an article in uh, the journal, in your journal recently with a bit more detail on this. And of course, there is the guidance uh, that you can look at. But essentially, setting up the service, I think the department needs to set it up as a team, but the people that will influence how it is delivered are going to be the dermatology nurses. There are certain things that will need to be considered and the nurses will help us to answer those questions. How's it going to work? And most likely it will be formalizing the nurse-led helpline. It will be some sort of triage process using a nurse-led helpline, but it will be much more formalized. And in actual fact, instead of just the nurses answering the calls, you would hope that you would set up some administrative support so that they could be triaged. So that those patients who've just not received an appointment through the post or they've run out of uh, their creams or ointments could be signposted appropriately. And then the administrative support would pass on the relevant calls to the nurses who would then sort out and triage appropriately. So it's going to be the nurses with the team that are going to work on how this will be set up. Uh, They'll need to think about things like who's booking the appointments, what's the timeline for callback or the email response, within what timescale should the patient expect to be seen. The other big thing that teams will need to discuss is the duration of what's called the PIFO. So for example, if you give a patient in our organisation, people said, oh, we'll give a PIFO of three or six months, but that's a complete waste of time because many of our patients need a PIFO for two or three years because their condition may not flare for several months or even several years. So you need to think about how long you're going to have this PIFO available to the patient and what happens at the end of that PIFO time For example, do they get discharged, do they get a telephone consultation, or do you extend that PIFU if you know they're a patient who's got difficult psoriasis that flares every little while? So I think this is a really key area where nurses are already doing this work, but we need to formalise it, we need to support them with a bit more administrative help, and we need to make it work better and identify ways in which it can be improved for everybody. Lovely. Thank you. And I think it is really important about formalising the work we're already doing because then it makes it easier for us as dermatology nurses to then go back to our managers and identify where our work weeks are going. Because I know that sometimes the kind of more uh, managerial aspect of working in a hospital, they only really count numbers on their hands and that's what they're concerned about. So I think a PIFU would be a really good way of quantifying all of this hidden work that's going on behind the scenes uh, that a lot of our dermatology nurses do. Absolutely. And I think um, the other thing just to say is I've just uh, the British Association of Dermatologists are also quite excited about this idea uh, because they believe that there's a real opportunity here to do exactly what you're saying, which is to formalise this work, which is just done on an ad hoc basis and isn't properly uh, resourced and captured. And they are about to produce a bit of uh, guidance and some resources for patients that they will produce on the BAD website. So I think there will increasingly be uh, resources available so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of setting up the service because patients will need information about how this service works, who to contact, and we want to provide resources so that people don't have to go away and develop those themselves in their own organisations. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll keep an eye on the BAD website for yeah, that. Definitely. Uh, if I can just ask, uh, move on, just to discuss about uh, innovating the two-week wait skin cancer pathway. So this is a question for uh, Julia. What uh, exciting innovations are there at the moment? 
Well, I'm really excited about this uh, two-week wait, the two-week wait pathways. Up until now, many of you will have been aware that um, the two week, once we get a two-week wait referral, so if Emma sends me a two-week wait referral, I cannot reject it. I cannot reject it. If it came with a picture and it was clearly a separate keratosis, I'm not allowed to reject it. I still have to see the patient. So they all have to be seen. Uh, the numbers are going up and we finish up cancelling routine activity in order to accommodate them because they all have to be seen in a face-to-face appointment. So people drive miles, take a day off work, or they have somebody bring them from a long way for me to spend 10 seconds saying it's a separate keratosis. It's frustrating for patients and it's a waste of everybody's time. So this has been going on for a long time. And during the pandemic, what was really exciting was that new models were developing. So a new, the particular model that developed during the pandemic was the use of teledermatology, which Emma's already spoken about a lot. So virtual pathways were being used, which worked well. And the other thing is that we did in Lincolnshire, as part of the 100-day elective care transformation program, a couple of years ago, we piloted another initiative, which we called the Community Spot Clinics. So the new pathways, which have been published, and that again is available on NHS Futures, instead of everybody having to come and have a face-to-face appointment, there are now two new pathways. One of them is a so-called virtual pathway, which is a teledermatology pathway, where the specialist reviews clinical and most importantly, as Emma has said, dermoscopic images. they're reviewed and then the patient is contacted and triaged appropriately. So if it's benign, they're told it's benign. If it's a BCC, it can be booked onto a list. Uh, if it's really worrying, the patient would be brought up for some one-stop surgery. So um, that's the virtual pathway. And going back to what Emma was saying about involvement of nurses in these pathways, there are centres where nurses are actually taking these images and taking the history from the patients and then the doctors are looking at the pictures at a later date. So there are two-week wait clinics, virtual clinics, so-called, that are being set up um, using images where nurses are involved in those. Now, the community-based squat clinics, which is the other option, um, this is particularly well-suited to a county like Lincolnshire because what happens is um, a specialist will go out to a community setting, for example, a GP surgery, And within that surgery, there will be three rooms running, supported by a practice nurse and maybe some healthcare assistants. Patients will fill out a pro forma about a single skin lesion. The patients are booked on by the primary care clinicians, where these are the ones where there is some concern that the patient doesn't want to travel to hospital. So they're community-based. The the, um, pro forma is completed by the uh, the healthcare support worker or by the practice nurse. The specialist, who will be an experienced dermatologist with a dermatoscope, will go in, look at the lesion and make a very quick diagnosis and triage. So back to GP, Epidex if it's an AK, book to to surgery if it's a BCC or whatever. So that's the community spot clinic. So the pathway now has three approaches. So instead of every single patient having to come to hospital, 
what we hope is that the virtual pathway will be used, the teledermatology pathway will be used, and then the community spot clinics will be used as well. So there are other opportunities that will reduce the need for a lot of these patients to attend at a hospital appointment. No, that's great. So you've made very clear that nurses are able to support with community-led clinics. Are there any other ways that nurses, dermatology nurses can be utilised or in what roles are they important? So, well, I think what one area that we just haven't covered, and I think it's really important to get this across to you, is that dermatology specialist nurses are having a hugely important role, expanding and developing role in skin lesion diagnosis and management. So, for example, we've got an awful lot of highly trained skin cancer specialist nurses now who are learning about skin lesion uh, diagnosis and management. So they, I think what we've got um, in our models of care, we've spoken to you about um, the role of nurses in referral optimization, in remote consultations, in PIFU. But what we mustn't forget is that dermatology specialist nurses have other roles within the patient pathway. And one of those is, is around skin lesion diagnosis and management. And that's a huge area of dermatology activity, as Emma and I have already outlined. Lovely. Thank you. And I've got a question for Emma now, and it is, what changes do you envision envision staying? So I would say that many of the proposed changes that uh, we've talked about on this podcast have already been implemented around the country, particularly teledermatology as pilots, including the two-week wait virtual pathway that Julia has described. And they've been piloted well during the pandemic, and they've been really to be very successful and popular with patients. So I do think that we are going to not see the end of turning dermatology. That is, we're going to be harnessing technological developments, including uh, as well as teledermatology remote consultations. And the aim being that we want to support the equity and speed of access for all our patients who have skin disease and to support streamlined pathways that link people to the right service at the right time. So I do want to emphasise, however, that there is no one size that fits all and local systems really need to develop their own approaches, which is built around their own patient demographics and organisational processes, and just to try and meet their local needs and settings. But I think our guidance, I'm sure Julia would agree, gives flexibility to local areas to look at the guidance and flexibly work with that to really optimise how patients are being seen in dermatology going forwards. Thank you. And I suppose the final piece of work that we we won't actually go into detail today because the guidance is yet to be confirmed was your point on the recovery model to manage the long waiters in dermatology due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But we will look forward to hearing more of that, more about that in the future. Yeah, I think that will come later. Um, where um, there are obviously an awful lot of patients waiting who've been delayed because of the pandemic and, and we do need to look at the elective recovery plan and work alongside those teams uh, to try and manage that. Um, but again, as Emma's already said, there are lots of systems around the country, lots of departments that are already using innovative approaches to this mm-hmm. and uh, are doing telephone triage of these patients to establish whether they still need to come or whether their condition's better. But we will produce some guidance uh, for uh, the recovery process in due course. Wonderful. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you both so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. 
And it's been so insightful. Thank you. Uh, there's so much information to digest there. But uh, it sounds like it's a very exciting project. And there's lots of things coming, particularly for us nurses to look forward to. So thank you. And maybe just on a final note, remind everyone listening where they can access this guidance. Yeah, so currently uh, you need to have uh, um, a it's NHS Futures website. You, it is past, you need to have an account, but anyone with an NHS.net account can register for an account and we have a dermatology area. And within that, all of our guidance resort, uh, documents plus uh, things like webinars, case studies, all the kind of things that we've been harnessing as part of this work and as part of the implementation we are actually doing an implementation toolkit as well. That will be available, hopefully not too far away as well. So how, if you've not registered, it's worth having a look and trying to get an account for that website. And then everything is available through that. The British Association of Dermatologists also has a link to quite a lot of, of the resources that are mentioned in our guidance. but uh, And they link to our um, the Futures website as well. Uh, in addition, we're doing a series of articles for your journal, uh, and we've already done the patient-initiated follow-up uh, article where that has been published. We did an overview editorial, and then we've done that article. Emma has just completed the remote consultations article, and we'll be uh, writing something about referral optimization as well. So we're really excited to work with you on this podcast because it's supporting uh, these other uh, pieces of work that we're doing uh, with the organisation. Absolutely. And yet another reason to sign up to the BDNG if you haven't yet signed up and are listening to this. <laughs> well, lovely. Thank you again for your time. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For further information and details of our upcoming events, visit our website bdng.org.uk and watch out for the next BDNG podcasts which are coming soon.